0: Anyway, you, you have your Bibles open to Psalm 135. The subject of this message this morning before we get there is a controversial one. We are, we are going to endeavor to learn about something controversial this morning. Not that the gospel is not controversial, but this is a controversial subject. You probably know there's a lot of debate in Christianity about the doctrine of election or predestination. The doctrine of election states that before creation began... God chose some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit, but only because of His sovereign purposes. That's what the doctrine of election states. Now, I did not choose this subject this morning for any other reason than it has a primary place in our current study in the Gospel of John. As you know, our method of teaching here at RBC is what I would call consistent expository exposition. That's what we practice here at RBC. That is, we teach through books of the Bible with the aim of unpacking the authorial attempt or intent or the original meaning, the author's meaning. And we do that, at, and while doing that, we apply that meaning to our lives. And so, kind of one of the mantras for me as a Bible interpreter, a Bible teacher, is there's one meaning and many applications. So, we're trying to get at that one meaning, and then we apply it in various ways. Sometimes I do that better than other times, but that's our goal on a Sunday morning. That being said, from time to time, we find that a given passage might have a certain emphasis that necessitates some kind of exploration beyond the current passage. Now, we do this from time to time by supporting points with cross-references. Sometimes we look at other Bible verses, and so we're not unfamiliar with that. However, sometimes the subject at hand or a given subject might demand more of a, more of a study or more of an intense study. It might warrant that, and so we might kind of do it a topical message. Now, this, this message this morning is a kind of topical message However, we will look at John 6, where we are currently at in our study of the Gospel of John. But I'm going to kind of move out of that more than maybe I normally would this morning. So, uh, there are two things that are true about each of us. The first is that each of us is always in need of an expanding view of our Savior. Peter tells us that, Like newborn infants, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk, excuse me, that by it we may grow up into salvation. And he exhorts us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So all of us are in need of an ever-expanding view of our Savior. That's true. There's something else that's also true, and maybe this is a little crass, but we need to dump wrong thinking. That's also true of each of us. Whatever we believe about our Savior, it's a mixture based on a host of different things. Previous teachings, our own study, our experiences, sin, our personality, various interests, etc. As we've traveled through life, we've picked up certain things and we've labeled them truth or error. We've all done that. We've collected these, uh, a certain understanding about the world and the way God operates in this world. Therefore, whenever we come to Scripture, we're, we're aiming after these two things. We're, we're trying to do, we're trying to expand our view of the Savior, but we're also trying to, as I'm saying, dump the wrong thinking. Those things are always true whenever we come to Scripture. Now, within this process, we have to remember that we're all in different places. Each of us is at a different place with our Savior and with our understanding, and this is certainly true when we address the topic of God's gracious and sovereign His sovereign and gracious electing love, as I've kind of captured it here this morning. Some of us need to grow in ways that others don't, and some of us need to jettison things that others don't. Either way, each of us needs to be patient with the other and work together to rightly understand the scriptures together. You and I need to be patient with each other in the way that God has been patient with us. And I say that, encouraging to you to remember that as maybe this topic comes up in a Bible study, a growth group, Sunday school class, one-on-one fellowship, wherever it comes up, we have to be patient with one another with regard to this topic. And I say that to myself as well. Whenever we approach any teaching, we are sure to have questions, yet it does often seem that we have more questions around this topic of election or predestination than maybe some other subjects. And so that's okay. It's good to ask questions. As I always say, all learning begins with a question. So if we don't have any questions, well, we're not going to learn anything. And So those questions, it's good to have those questions. However, I, I will say that if you do have questions, as we work through this and we study this this morning, I encourage you to write those questions down. Write them down. Don't just run and come ask me or an elder or someone else, write them down, go to the God of the Word, study the Scriptures, think about it, pray about it, and see if God in His Word, through His Word and through the power of His Spirit, might answer some of those questions or give you clarity to some of the challenges that you see maybe surrounding this topic of the doctrine of election and of predestination. Finally, there is always a danger, this is all by way of introduction, Finally, there's always a danger when talking about any doctrine or teaching from Scripture that that thing, whatever it is, might become our focus. God's sovereignty, eschatology, last things, end time stuff, evangelism. As wonderful as the truth of, even of salvation are, the things about the gospel and the way God saves us, as wonderful as those things are, If these become our focus, if theology becomes our focus, we've gone astray. Whenever whenever we study anything from Scripture or anything about God, our focus must be primarily on the Savior, not on our salvation. Yes, salvation and the various elements of the gospel are glorious. They are absolutely glorious. But even these are lesser than our Savior. We cannot raise the work of God above the person of God. We must remember we worship the Savior by reflecting on His work. So reflecting on His work, in reflecting on His work, we are worshiping Him. He is what's primary, not our understanding of some complex doctrine. Therefore, the purpose of this study is less about understanding and, I hope, more about worship. I hope in the end that understanding this makes us better worshipers of our God. That's my goal here this morning. I guess that's always our goal. Therefore, with all these things in mind, I'd like us to begin with a broad view, a broad view of God's sovereign and gracious electing love in Scripture. Excuse me. Now, I will warn you this morning that I'm going to challenge you to look at a number of Scripture passages. I know we don't often do that here, kind of stay central in one passage, but I am going to challenge you to kind of look around in your Bible and follow along with me, although I will provide some aids this morning by putting some verses up on the screen, or at least the addresses, so you'll know at least where we're going this morning. It's my hope, of course, that you would look up those verses and that you'd kind of follow along with me. And so I hope that you would do that. Now, I've already asked you to turn to Psalm 135, and so I've already kind of cheated a little bit because you're already in our beginning verse. So let's begin then with Psalm 135, verses 5 and 6, which says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and on earth, and in the seas and all deeps. This passage declares that God is great. He is an exalted God, and He is above all gods. And the reason He is so great, as the psalmist says, is that He does whatever He pleases, wherever He pleases, wherever He wants, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. From the highest place to the lowest place, God does whatever He wishes, and so He is great. The second verse I want you to look at is Exodus thirty-three nineteen. 19. Now, I have this one on the screen for you. I'll kind of go to every other one here. In this passage, as you know, Moses asks God to show him his glory. That's the context of this passage. God responds by saying that all his goodness will pass before him. All God's goodness will pass before Moses. The verse says, and he said... I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, if you were with us last week, the Lord, or Yahweh, his covenant name. And then he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Notice, God's goodness is described or further explained with these words, with this phrase, I will be gracious to whom I will... I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. This is how God captures His glory and His goodness by saying, by giving us this phrase. These are descriptions of His glory and goodness. From all the things that might have communicated to Moses in this moment, that all the things He might have communicated, He decided to communicate this, to declare His desire to be gracious and merciful. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10. This is the fifth book in the Bible, the last of what's called the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy chapter 10. In verse verse 14, we see again this exalted God as we saw in Psalm 135. Deuteronomy 10 verse 14. Behold, to the Lord To the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. As we see, God owns the heaven of heavens, He owns the earth and all that is in it. He is an exalted God. And it's from this exalted place that God decides decides to do what? He sets his heart, it says, on a part of that creation. He sets his heart on a unique people, a people group, one nation. He does not set his heart on the Edomites. He does not set them on the Philistines, on the Amalekites or any other Ikites, Whoever they are, he doesn't set them on any of those. He sets them on one nation, that is, the nation of Israel. So God's choice was limited to one nation and to one people, the nation of Israel. Next verse, Jeremiah 1.5. This one is on the screen for you. It's a small one, short one. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Behold, he's speaking to Jeremiah, God is. Behold, I formed you in the womb, excuse me, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. This is, of course, a statement regarding Jeremiah's purpose. Namely, that he would be a prophet of God. Notice that God says that he knew him before he was born, before he was formed. God has a personal knowledge of Jeremiah prior to his existence. And God consecrated or set him apart for a special purpose. Now, what does it mean to be consecrated? What does that mean? Well, something that's consecrated is removed from common use and set apart for a special purpose. That was Jeremiah. God, with special knowledge chose Jeremiah for a special purpose. I really like the way the Christian Standard Bible translates this verse. They make it very clear. It's a good translation. It says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So let me quickly summarize all of these kind of Old Testament, all these Old Testament verses. First, the Lord is an exalted God who wills, desires to be gracious and compassionate. And as an exalted God, nothing can hold Him back. There's nothing that can thwart the will of God. And that will is to bestow grace and mercy on whoever whoever He wills. God's grace and compassion or mercy is not shown to everyone. As we learned, God shows His special grace and mercy on one nation, one people group, Israel, and even more specifically on one man, Jeremiah. All of this demonstrates that God's mercy and love is not initiated by anyone else. Not the nation of Israel or not any other person. As the exalted God, it is God and God alone who decides on whom He will bestow His grace and mercy. Finally, God's love is initiated by one thing and one thing only. His holy desire. His will. His perfect knowledge and perfect will. That's what initiates His love. So these are some Old Testament verses. Let's move to the New Testament and then finally we'll make our way to John 6 but I want to look at some New Testament verses first. Now now that you're a little warmed up looking in your Bibles right? The fingers are moving a little bit. Uh, Now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to post the addresses on the board. And so at least you'll know where we're going. So you can know which verses we're going to look at to make it as easy as possible for you. But these verses are too long to put on the screen. It'd be just too small. So uh, I trust that you can follow along. The first one is Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, of course, I know you want to you want me you, yeah, you want me to take note of, I think I'm saying that right. The fact that Paul says, We're chosen before the foundations of the world. Yes, it's in this text that we're chosen before the foundations of the world, and that the Father predestined us for adoption. But notice. The blessings that come as a result of God's choice. They just heap on. God's heaping on the blessings um, of, uh, for us. He heaps spiritual blessings on us. We receive every spiritual blessing. I'm not sure what that means, but wow. Every spiritual blessing we receive. We are holy and blameless. We are adopted into His family. All of this is ours. Based on what condition? What did we do to receive this spiritual stockpile? Nothing. We did nothing to receive this. Why does God heap these blessings on us? Well, Paul says, according to the purpose of whose will? God's will, of His will, which is why... He explodes into praise in verse 5. All Paul can say at that point is, to the praise of His glorious grace. It's all in God. That's all he can do is worship his God. Look down at verses 11 and 12. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, again, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Again, we have more spiritual blessings. Here we have the inheritance. And why has God given us such an inheritance? According to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, I know all things here means all things. We say that all the time. It does certainly mean all things. The context, though, the central idea are the things of salvation. So what Paul's talking about. The central idea is God's electing choice of the believer. And all of this is to is, is according to the counsel of God's will. Look at Romans 8. Got to go to the left. Romans 8, or up, I guess, if you're on a screen. Romans 8, verses 28 through 33. We looked at this passage last night, if you were with us. For the service, Romans 8 verses 28 through 33, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Interestingly, Paul here is going to use election as a comfort for the believer. Again, verse 28, all things work together for good. Well, how does Paul know that all things work together for our good. How does he know that? How can he say that? Well, the only reason he can say that is because of the doctrine of election. And that's why he goes on, and he mentions that here in the following verses. It's because, verse 29, for, so he's further explaining what he just said, all things work together for good, for, let me explain that, for those whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He also justified, and those whom He justified, He also glorified. The reason Paul knows this, that all things work together for good, is because God foreknew and predestined His people to be conformed to the image of His Son. If there was no promise of that, Paul wouldn't know that. His logic is based on election. Now, using this logic, without the doctrine of election, well, you and I have no confidence that all things, in fact, work for our good. We have no confidence that God will pr- preserve us to the end. It's actually interesting that those who deny the doctrine of election also deny uh, the teaching that God, uh, the one saved always saved, the perseverance of the saints. They often deny that. They have no hope. Because they don't believe in the doctrine of election. These things oftentimes go hand in hand. I'm trying not to go into that discussion, however, let's just stay with the doctrine of election. Some have tried to argue, of course, that when Paul speaks of God's foreknowledge in this verse, he is speaking of our actions or decision to believe in the future. Maybe you've heard that. Some have said, and I've read this that God somehow kind of looks into the future and sees that we will choose him, that's what foreknowledge means. And so God sees that we choose him and so then those are the elect. Some have tried to say that with this term, foreknowledge. The problem with this, and there are many problems with that view, but the problem there is that Paul here is not talking about our decision. He's talking about us. He's ta- he says those whom he foreknew, the people he foreknew, just in the same way that he chose Jeremiah. He didn't foreknow the decision of the person. He foreknew the person, which of course makes perfect logical sense because you can't predestine anyone that you don't foreknew. And so again, Jeremiah is, that's one of the reasons why I quoted that passage. It's it a very significant passage with regard to foreknowledge. God knew Jeremiah before he was born. He predestined him, he chose him. Same with The elect. Acts thirteen. Let's go to Acts thirteen. This is our next verse. So we've talked a lot about God's sovereignty, election. We've seen a number of of different perspectives on this, so to speak, or different uh, ways it's articulated in the Scripture. But we haven't have we haven't really been we haven't introduced human responsibility. And so this, with this verse, we will see how human responsibility comes into the equation. And we'll see this further as we continue this study. But we'll see it for the first time here in this verse. Acts 13, verses 46 through 48. Next, start at verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. They were jealous, the crowds. Verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then... Go to verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Of course, they were happy. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's a fascinating set of verses. Notice who's to blame for rejecting the gospel. Who was to blame? They were, right? You thrust it aside. But who's responsible for believing in verse 48? as many as were appointed to eternal life. God is responsible. Both are here in this one verse. Go to Romans 9. Let's just look at this real briefly, Romans 9. Then we'll get to John. Of course, any discussion of election has to find its way to Romans 9. And we could do a, a detailed study of this there's a lot here on this subject, but I, I want to just read it and, and put it in the room, so to speak. Romans chapter 9, look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, go down to verse 12, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why? Now go back up to that part we skipped. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. I don't know how it could be any clearer in Scripture. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Well, then there has to be injustice with God. How could God hate someone? Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, which is the strongest way of saying, absolutely not, no way possible can there be injustice with God. God is always just. He is the exalted God who does whatever he wants. And what is it in his character and nature to be? Well, notice what Paul does. For he says to Moses, Here's the verse we already quoted from the Old Testament. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I think Paul is is highlighting the right question, which is what we'll get to later. A little foreshadowing, maybe. Why would God choose anyone? And then go down to verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out Of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Let me summarize with a couple quotes. The first is from from Wayne Grudem in his book, Bible Doctrine. He says this The New Testament presents the entire outworking of our salvation as something brought about by a personal God in relationship with personal creatures. God's act of election was neither impersonal nor mechanistic but was permeated with personal love for those whom He choose, chose. Excuse me, George Zemeck writes, "...Election on the part of God in eternity is the source from which the process of salvation springs, and it is the ultimate reason for the salvation of man. They are chosen by God unto salvation. The Bible is exceedingly clear on the basis of election." It is not found in man, nor what man does, but it is found in who God is and what He has done. Now, let us turn to John 6. I know I'm moving fast. I have a lot here, and I want to try to get, get through it, so I hope you're following along here. We're moving to John 6 now, and here we're going to see God's sovereign and gracious, God's sovereign and gracious electing work through Jesus. Now, some of this we did cover this last week, so it should be familiar with you with this or with you uh, this morning. And so I'm not gonna. There's a lot of verses here. I'm just gonna highlight this idea of, of again, God's sovereign and gracious electing love in this passage and through Jesus. Uh, as we start, we know this bread of life speech from Jesus is delivered the day after Jesus fed the five thousand. As the section begins, the crowds are searching for Jesus. They can't find him. They don't know how he got across the sea. They eventually find him, and verse 59 actually tells us that this discussion happens in the synagogue in Capernaum. So verse 59 there, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When exactly this discussion moves into the synagogue, or if the whole thing is in the synagogue, I'm not sure. It doesn't say. But we do know that this happens in the synagogue. Jesus warns the crowd of superficial belief in verse 26. Jesus answers them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He expands the thought in verse 27 and tells the people to not work for the food that perishes. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. To work for food that spoils, food that perishes, is to pour our efforts, pour your efforts into things that don't align with God's efforts. In verse 15, for example, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. The crowd had, they they were seeking for food that perishes in seeking a materialistic king. They didn't understand why Jesus came. You might remember the woman at the well who only desired an endless supply of water. She didn't want to return to the well to fetch water. Again, these are, this, is a, this is food that perishes. Worldly kingdoms, a well that doesn't run out of physical water, this is food that perishes. What Christ is exhorting the crowds and us to do is to seek the food that endures to eternal life. And it's this food that is the focus of the speech in this section. Jesus also adds that He is able to give this food that endures to eternal life because the Father has set His seal on Him. That's what He says at the end of verse 27. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. D.A. Carson says, The idea is that God has certified the Son. He certified the Son as His own agent, authorizing Him as the one who alone can bestow this food. Which leads to an interesting discussion in verses 30 and 34 about Moses and the manna in the wilderness. Look at verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Remember, he just fed 5,000. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So you see, they only see a miracle worker while they, they see Jesus as a miracle worker or a potential king. That's all they see. They fail to see Jesus as, as the Son of God who perfectly expresses the words and the will of the Father. They're curious about Jesus, but they only want Him for self-serving reasons. They don't see Him as the exalted God, the bread that comes down from heaven. So, they're not connecting the dots, and so Jesus is very explicit in verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. So, if these people cannot see who who Jesus is, and he becomes, he's so explicit, he then says in verse 36, but I I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. They will not accept him for what he is, the bread that came down from heaven. I I don't know why they're confused about Moses and Jesus. Maybe it's because Moses continued to create this miracle. But for whatever reason, they do not see him for who he says he is. And so, they do not believe him. They will not accept him for for who he is. And so, has God's sovereign and electing work through Jesus failed? Has God's mission failed? Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Is there any hope? Well, to quote Paul, may it never be. There's always hope. God's saving purpose cannot be thwarted because salvation isn't determined by these Jews. It's not determined by man. Jesus' confidence to seek and to save that which was lost does not rest in man's potential response. Look at verses 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. Jesus begins there in verse 37. He refers to the elect as a collective whole. All that the Father has given me. He uses a singular. It's one group. All of these elect that the Father has given me, they come to me. The elect are one whole unit. And then he says, individually, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The Father has given a collective whole, the elect, to Jesus, and Jesus Himself will persevere or preserve, excuse me, preserve each one to the end. Furthermore, in verses 38 and 39, the entire purpose of the incarnation of Jesus coming down from heaven is to do the will of the Father. To Remember, He's authorized to do this, to gather the elect and to preserve them until the final day. That's what Jesus is doing. Here we see, as we did earlier, but of course with some more specifics here, that there exists a group of people who have been given by the Father to the Son. And this group will, by necessity, unavoidably, inevitably, and inescapably come to the, come to the Son and be preserved by the Son. John is not reluctant to give us a God that sovereignly elects people through the work of Jesus. He he gives us that kind of God. He does not shy away from God's electing work. And yet, what is what what have we found out about this book, maybe beyond anything else? Well, I think the glory of Jesus is bigger than this. But at least as regards to our call and what we're supposed to do, what's the whole point of what John is after? That we would do what? Believe. That we believe in the Lord. That we would take some kind of action over and over and over again. John is calling us to believe. These signs are given so that we would believe that we would take action. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever does what? Believes. Takes an action and actually believes. Will not perish but have eternal life. And so, even right here, In the context of election, what does verse 40 say? For this is the will of the Father, that whoever looks on the Son and does what? Believes in Him should have eternal life. God's electing love and human responsibility. Belief. Just like Paul said to those Jews. You rejected it, but God appointed those to believe. Verse 41, I suspect John has one foot in the past when he writes as a result of this. So the Jews grumbled about him. That sounds familiar. If you're familiar with that Exodus story, you know how often the Jews grumbled at Moses. Well, here, they have the same spirit as their fathers, and so they grumble. Yet this time, they're not complaining about the type. They're complaining about the anti-type. The fulfillment of that manna that Moses had. The true bread that came down from heaven. Yet again, even though they grumble, there is hope. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's a powerful statement. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will do what? I will raise him up on the last day. If you're unaware of R.C. Sproul's wonderful explanation of this verse in his book, Chosen by God, I would certainly commend it to you. If you haven't read that, I would commend that book to you. I'm going to use some of his stuff here to explain this verse. He does such a terrific job explaining it. Notice here first that Jesus uses a universal negative. The words no one are all-inclusive. They allow no exceptions. And the next word is very critical. No one can. Jesus is speaking of ability, not permission. How often do we exasperate our kids? What do they say? Can I have a drink of water? I don't know. Can you? Isn't that what we say? The issue is not ability. It's permission. That's what they're after. So they respond with, may I have a glass of water? We're helping them along the path. I don't know who that helps, but we feel better about ourselves. In verse 44, Jesus is not saying, no one is allowed to come to me. That's not what he's saying. He is saying, no one is able to come to me. Jesus is speaking of the ability to come to him, to believe in him. And the next word is very important, unless, unless, which is a necessary condition. It simply means that something must happen Before something else happens. That's what that word means, unless. You don't get your driver's license unless you pass the driver's test. You don't leave the hospital bed unless, unfortunately, the doctor lets you leave. Well, you don't come to Jesus unless the Father draws you. It's a necessary condition. Now, of course, what exactly does it mean for the Father to draw you? What does that mean, the word draw? Does Jesus mean that God woos us to Christ? Is that what he means here? In the way that I lure my two-year-old with a warm bottle? Come here, Lazarus, come here. Well, what happens when Lazarus says, I don't want that, I want to romp on the couch? And so Lazarus rejects my bottle and he runs over to the couch and now the couch is a gymnasium. He can resist some, such things. The word that Jesus uses, translated here, draw, in verse 44, carries the idea of to compel. To compel. Listen to how James, in James 2.6, he uses the same word. He says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Can you guess which word is the same there? Drag. Drag. R.C. Sproul teases, he writes, Let us substitute the word woo in the text. Thus, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who woo you into court? Uh, I don't think so. That's ridiculous. What must I do to get Lazarus off the couch? I must drag him, right? I must draw him over, compel him to move. One of the best Greek dictionaries says the word means, to move an object from one area to another in a pulling motion. If I ever hope to get little lads from bounding away on the couch, I must drag him from it. And if the Father might rescue us from the sin and unbelief we are bound up with, he must draw us to himself. Look again, verses 28 and 29. I don't think we read it, but look at verses 28 and 29. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Here's the mystery. You and I must believe, yet that belief Jesus calls The work of God. So we've seen God's gracious and God's sovereign and gracious electing love in Scripture. God's sovereign and gracious electing love through Jesus. And now let's embrace the mystery of God's sovereign and gracious electing love. Embrace the mystery. People have tried in many ways to illustrate how God's election and man's belief or responsibility might work together. I don't know if you've heard some of these analogies. I remember when I was a, just became a Christian, someone once said, a Bible teacher said, God's sovereignty and man's freedom are like two railroad tracks that meet in eternity. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. And I thought at the moment that that seemed helpful. And I realized that it wasn't very helpful. Sounded good. It didn't really solve any problems for me. And so... It's good, I guess, as far as it goes, because like all analogies, they break down at some point. There is not one perfect analogy or illustration for God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Uh, however, I do like C.J. Mahaney's illustration of God's electing love. I think it, it, it is one of the truest ones I've, I've read or heard. He says it's not that we're standing in line to get into heaven and God. I guess I imagine kind of a doctor's office that we're standing waiting to get into heaven and God comes out and then chooses some of us. It's not what it's like. What it's like is that we're all running to hell and God steps out and chooses some of us. That, I think, is a better picture of what the Bible teaches, which reveals... The greatest mystery of God's sovereign and gracious electing love, and I think it's this why would God choose anyone? This, I think, is the greatest mystery. Of course, there's so much more to say, but what does the Bible say about our ability to come to Jesus Christ? The Bible says we're dead in our sin, we're slaves to unrighteousness, we're alienated from God, we're hostile toward God, spiritually blind, we're captives. We're trapped in Satan's kingdom. We're powerless to change our sinful nature. We're unable to please God. We're incapable of understanding spiritual truth. Why in the world, or what in the world, would God want with me? You've probably been to Calm. It's our kind of local zoo. It's not really a zoo, but it's kind of like a zoo. Maybe you've been there. They have that that exhibit of the California condor. Maybe you've seen it, those large birds. Imagine you're a zookeeper there. I don't know if they call them zookeepers, but you work for Calm and you're a zookeeper there and you want to uh, perform a test every morning of the month. You take out a a head of lettuce and you lay it on one side of the the cage and a a dead carcass of an animal on the other side. Sorry. A dead carcass on the other side. And you get out your clipboard and you watch every morning. How many mornings in that month do you think that condor is going to come out and go to the head of lettuce? you're probably only going to need one column on that clipboard. Because every morning, that condor is going to go to that dead animal carcass. You and I are like the condor. We are dead in our sin. We are unable to please God. We're by nature children of wrath. Our only hope, our only hope in this life is God's gracious and sovereign electing love. It's our only hope. Whatever mystery we choose to ponder about this topic, whatever mystery it is, this is the one we must ponder above all others. Why me? And it's out of this mystery that humility must rise. I know it's cliche to say out of the ashes of this mystery... Humility must rise. But it's true. I mentioned R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God. There's another one I would commend to you by J.A. Packer. It's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It's another terrific book, J.A. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Packer writes, A God whom we could understand exhaustively and whose revelation of himself confronted us with no mysteries whatsoever would be a God in man's image. And therefore, and therefore, an imaginary God. Not the God of the Bible at all. For what the God of the Bible says is this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But meanwhile, he continues, Our wisdom is to maintain with equal emphasis... And I love this, both the apparently conflicting truths in each case, to hold them together in the relation in which the Bible itself sets them, and to recognize that here is a mystery which we cannot explain to solve in this world. We must never say so much about election, end quote, by the way, we must never say so much about election that we've snuffed out the call to believe. And we must never say so much about belief that we've snuffed out election. We must stand with Jesus and say, as it says in verse 29 there, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. Regarding the apparent contradiction between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, Packer encourages us, quote, Accept it for what it is and learn to live with it. Refuse to regard the apparent inconsistency as real. Put down the semblance of contradiction, the resemblance of contradiction, to the deficiency of your own understanding. It's not that God has a problem or that God has miscommunicated something. It's me. I'm the one that that can't understand this. God hasn't made any mistakes. He goes on. Think of the two principles as not rival alternatives, but in some way that at present you do not grasp complementary to each other these two camps we like to get on human responsibility god's sovereignty don't do that bring them together let them exist together as the bible has presented them and if it if it seems like a contradiction just own that and say that's my misunderstanding because your thoughts are too too much for me god Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon how he might reconcile God's sovereign electing love with a call for men to believe. You remember what Spurgeon said? I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. Friends? Yes, friends. These are friends. Packer again. This is the point that we have to grasp in the Bible, and I would add in the Book of John, as we'll see as we continue the Book of John. This isn't going to go away. We're going to be dealing with this again as we as we move forward. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends and they work together. I do want to look at one more verse before we close. It's in Acts chapter 18. You turn there. Acts chapter 18. Bless you. Acts 18, verse 9. In this passage, Paul is in Corinth. He's on a second missionary journey, and he's experiencing, of course, persecution again. The Lord appears to him in a vision in verse 9, and the Lord says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God is telling Paul that there are people in Corinth that are his. God is giving Paul a reason to evangelize. And how does Paul respond? Imagine if God appeared to you in a vision and said, there are many people that are going to believe. Well, what do I need to do? Go take in a, a movie? Paul does not throw up his hands. Does the, knowledge of, does the knowledge that God has an elect in Corinth dissuade Paul from sharing the gospel? Look at verse 11. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This is Paul was in Ephesus for over two years, two years, a little longer. And here is a year and a half. He was here a very long time when you think about all that Paul did. And yet he knew that many in this city would believe and be, be God's people. Here's the question that confronts us today. Has this great doctrine of God's sovereign and electing love compelled us to evangelize? I don't know if you think about it that way, but it's true. Has the knowledge that God has many in this city Many in Bakersfield, California, who are God's people, has that compelled us to speak to our neighbors, to speak to our coworkers, to speak to our family, to speak to strangers about God's sovereign and gracious electing love? I'm not sure what you thought about the doctrine of election when you came here this morning. Maybe you came this morning despising it. Maybe you're one of those. I don't know. Maybe you walked in thinking that it's contrary to your experience. It's contrary to what you, what you see in the Bible about the call to believe. And you've rejected it. I do realize that change takes time. But it's my hope that you might leave here today thinking differently about the doctrine of election. That I, as I said earlier your view of the Savior might have expanded and you've laid aside maybe some errors you've picked up along the way. Maybe you came in and you're just indifferent because you just don't like this whole thing. I don't want to deal with it. It's too much for me. You've heard about it some, but you don't want to dabble in these things. Well, likewise, it's my view, it's my hope that this discussion this morning would give you an expanded view of your Savior. And you might see that wrestling with this mystery isn't unneeded. It is good and it is helpful. I suppose the highest and best questions aren't so much about what we think about election or predestination or any doctrine, really. It's what we think about our Savior. It's what we think about God. God. You and I are, are you and I willing to worship the God who sovereignly and graciously elects us to salvation and yet calls us to believe in him? Is that our God? It's the God of the Bible. Are you willing to humbly embrace the mystery of God's sovereign and gracious electing love and, as Paul did, tell others about your Savior? One more quote from Packer. The sovereignty of God in grace gives us our hope of success in evangelism. Some fear that belief in the sovereign grace of God leads to the conclusion that evangelism is pointless. Since God saves his elect anyway, whether they hear the gospel or not. So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God in grace is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. I would argue that if you were to study missionaries, the greatest missionaries in this world, I know this is a crazy claim because I don't know that much, but in my study, the greatest missionaries were all believed in this. They affirmed the doctrine of election. It gave them great hope on the mission field because there were people out there that were God's people They just needed to hear the gospel and believe. So, Packer continues, were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. It would be up to us. We'd have to convince people. I don't know who to convince. All I need to do is be faithful and tell people about Jesus and watch God do the work and watch His sovereign and gracious electing love Spread like wildfire. That's all I need to do. It would be the most futile and useless enterprise had it not been for God's sovereign grace that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. Because how could we come? We're by children, nature, uh, children of wrath by nature. We're hostile towards God. So you see, our God has not given us a fool's errand. Our God's sovereign and gracious electing love not only compels us, but convinces us that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. And so, God is saying to us through Paul, church, do not be afraid. But go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, says the Lord, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city for my people amen